Hello, sports fans, and welcome to Let Me Speak, the show that shares sports' biggest headlines explained, uninterrupted, and maybe a little audacious. I'm Joe Braverman, and today's topics we'll be discussing are how Milwaukee captured the NBA championship and what the future holds for the Bucks and the Phoenix Suns. Plus, should the Tokyo Olympics even continue with the rise of COVID-19 cases? And a recap of last week's Summer X Games. It's episode 32 of Let Me Speak, and it starts right now. Back once again here on Thursday, July 22nd, 2021, the 32nd edition of Let Me Speak. Thank you very much once again for tuning in, whether you're on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, watching us on YouTube, wherever you are. Thank you for joining. And we're winding down a little bit towards the, we're in the middle part of summer. We're winding a bit. There's been a lot of action going on in the sports world. Things look like they're slowing down just a little bit. But obviously, we have to talk about the biggest sports headline from this past week. It has to be the end of the NBA Finals. We finally have our conclusion, and it was the Milwaukee Bucks, who are the 2021 NBA champions. After being down 0-2 yet again in this postseason, Milwaukee closing it out on their home court against the Phoenix Suns this past Tuesday. 105-98, and they win the series in six games. And I got to say, what an impressive series for Milwaukee. I would have to say probably the best series that they've played, probably more than than the Miami sweep in that first round, I would definitely say, because they were down 0-2. It looked like momentum was all going to Phoenix. And then they come back and win four straight. Starting with that game three was absolutely dominant and then it just looked like they had control the rest of the way and they they did they won four straight and got their first title since 1971 now if you want to do some quick math that's 50 years 50 years and me personally I love seeing a team break that kind of drought that's why I would have been happy either way because Phoenix hadn't won it at all in their franchise you know I love seeing teams break that kind of scoreless drought but what was funny about the last couple of games that we saw in game five and game six since the last episode I found it real interesting that as great as these two offenses have been it was really defensively that was the biggest difference maker and obviously no one's going to argue it because defense is going to be the ultimate thing that wins a championship for a team but When you look at the regular season, Milwaukee was the best offense in points per game, ranking-wise. They were number one, and Phoenix was number seven in the regular season. They were seventh, but it was just a total defensive grind, and especially in that game six. I mean, it was tied at 77 at halftime. Those are numbers that you get back in, like, the mid-2000s, something like that. I mean, in that game six, there were 12 total three-pointers made only 12 
three-pointers were made between two teams. And of course it was they had identical field goal percentages with Phoenix at 44%, Milwaukee 45%. And then it was just a little bit sloppy with 34 total team turnovers between both teams. Phoenix had the plus 5 advantage, but still it was just making those big plays at the end. So the turnovers were really more crucial, I would say, for the Bucks, more important than the Suns, the way they were able to force Phoenix and force Chris Paul into his hand. Remember, Chris Paul had been flawless up until Game 3, and then they changed their defensive strategy and really lock him down with Drew Holiday, making his big impact on Paul and on Devin Booker, limiting his shooting, because obviously both guys did not put up fantastic numbers like they did in game one and game two. Obviously, Booker had the 40 points in game five, I believe. and But it was still it was still in a loss. He had two 40-point games, I should say. And he still lost. So, I think Drew Holiday making that switch and kind of sticking with him. I mean, it was pretty clear as day after game one and game two that defensively, all these switchings where you have Brooke Lopez on Chris Paul, or you have Brooke Lopez on Devin Booker, clearly was not going to work. It was clearly not going to work. And so making that switch and having Drew Holiday basically lock on to either two of them, don't get in any kind of mismatch, was very important for Milwaukee. But like I said last week, heading into Game 5, the Suns just had to avoid getting in foul trouble. And, you know, whether it was their fault or not, Milwaukee continued to drive the basket, attack DeAndre Ayton, and once again, they got him in foul trouble, which was very important in this series because, remember, no Dario Saric with that torn ACL, so there's no size behind Ayton. There's no size behind him on the bench. They tried it with Frank Kaminsky, but Kaminsky can only do so much. He's not really a physical kind of body. He's kind of, in my eyes, more for an offensive standpoint. He's there if you need your offense to pick up down low. But then they just couldn't match the toughness that P.J. Tucker had, that Bobby Portis had coming off of the bench. So that that second unit just didn't have the equal physical play that those two players had. And I think that will be an issue to address in the future for Phoenix. But in getting back to this game in this series, I mean, the talk has to be about the Greek freak has to be about Giannis getting his first ring. And I got to tell you, I was a big fan of him before. I'm an even bigger fan now because you listen to some of his comments after the game. He's saying, I don't need a super team. You know, when you look at this roster, it's not a super team. You know, he does have an all-star in Chris Middleton and a former all-star, only a one-time all-star though, in Drew Holiday. But Really, just up and down the roster, you know, there's no glitz and glamour. There's no super team, you see. And, you know, that that's the way you win. And, obviously, obviously, it's it's different with this season, obviously, with COVID playing out and injuries and all that. But seeing this kind of team win a championship kind of makes me feel good. It really does make me feel good. Kind of similar to when... Toronto won theirs. Yeah, they had Kawhi Leonard. Yeah, they had Kyle Lowry. But again, it wasn't a team that jumped out at you and said, oh, this is a super team. They've got superstars and all-stars aplenty. 
This was not the case for that Milwaukee team. They just had guys who worked well at the best time. But going back to Giannis, I think he has ultimately cemented with this championship win a Hall of Fame career. I think this early, I know he's like 27 or something like that, 26, 27, but he's already in the Hall of Fame in my books. He's already in there. Because remember, this guy was picked 15th, I believe, eight years ago, and he was 18 at the time. And by like two seasons in, people were saying, oh, he's overrated. You know, he's got that freakish athleticism, but he can't do anything other than that. Well, guess what? Since then, he's won the MVP two times in a row. He's won a Defensive Player of the Year, and now he's the Finals MVP. And he closed out the Phoenix Suns by putting up 50 points. 50 points. Okay, that doesn't sound like overrated to me. That does not sound like overrated to me. That shows me superstar. Shows me superstar. Shows me Hall of Famer. And I expect to see the Greek Freak in the Hall of Fame when all is said and done. I don't care what else happens in his career. If he never wins again. If he never wins another title. I don't care. He has that ring. That cemented his legacy. But going back to what he did in this series. I mean, a lot of the talk was about not letting him get those easy alley-oops, dunks, and layups, and stuff like that. He headed to the free-throw line, and he came up clutch, okay? And I ultimately think that him getting fouled so much was kind of helping Giannis in improving his free-throw shooting. I, I really do think that's what happened with the Greek Freak, because again, he got fouled so much. I mean, listen to these numbers through these six games in the postseason, okay? Um, in the free throw category, 7 of 12, 11 of 18, 13 of 17, 4 of 8, 4 of 11, 17 of 19. All right, so he never missed more than seven free throws a game. There would be games where Giannis misses about 10. So he ultimately improved, I would say, as the series went along. He got a little bit more comfortable and it was ultimately like just taking more practice, essentially. Because, like, if you ask me, free throws alone in a gym when no one else is watching is a lot harder than multiple eyes on you. I think so, because you're all alone in your thoughts. And I think being in these kind of scenarios for Giannis really helped him out and gave him the confidence to be at the free throw line. You know, he knows his rotation. He knows his routine. He knows about the crowd noise and stuff like that. So I think it just came second nature to him, especially in that game six when he only missed two free throws. But I mean, if if you were any other team with the numbers that he was putting up before this NBA Finals, you would say, yeah, our strategy is to foul him, give him nothing easy. But it was just Giannis, again, being that superstar, being that Hall of Famer, coming up in the clutch and helping his team out. So I give all the credit in the world to this NBA Finals win to Giannis, to the Greek freak, because he himself earned that championship, okay? He was definitely the Finals MVP. Because, I mean, he put up more than 30 points in six out of, or four out of the six games, okay? Game log went like this, 20 points, 17 rebounds, 42 points, 12 rebounds, 41 and 13, 26 and 14, 32 and 9, 50 and 14, okay? 
And ultimately, it was just that Game 6 was just the icing on the cake for Giannis to have the best postseason of his career. And I think, you know, seeing that block on DeAndre Ayton with the layup, he had so many iconic moments that you're going to look back five years from now and say, that is one of the all-time great plays. It's one of the all-time great series and performances. So I'll say it again. This Milwaukee team won this NBA championship because Giannis Antetokounmpo was a megastar. Not a superstar, a megastar. But, you know, people are already talking about next season, if he's going to be able to repeat. Listen, I'll just put it out there like this. That this postseason, in particular, was all altered because of the injuries, okay? Just, I I mentioned it many weeks ago about how many injuries there were in this postseason, okay? The Lakers weren't the same. The Warriors weren't the same. The Clippers weren't the same. There were so many teams that had injury problems that really, I think, paved the way for Milwaukee to get this far. Now, I think Milwaukee's still going to be a great team, regardless of what happens, because they only have a handful of free agents. I think their biggest free agents have to be like P.J. Tucker and Bobby Portis. That might be like the biggest ones off the top of my head. But to me, they're still the second best team in the East. If we have a full, healthy 30 teams in the NBA, a healthy 15 teams in the NBA, from what the rosters have been like, I think they're still behind Brooklyn. They're still the second-best team in the East. Maybe, I think, because of the drama with Ben Simmons and the 76ers, that's why I'd put them ahead of them. I think Philadelphia is like third. But I think Brooklyn, again, they've got that big three. If they're all healthy and they all learn to play with each other, I think they're the best team in the East. And it's a very, very early, early prediction. You know, the odds makers are saying the Nets are the favorite. But that's without an offseason. We don't know what's going to happen. And we obviously don't know what's going to happen with Chris Paul and Phoenix. Because I think regardless of whether Chris Paul stays or not, they should still be a playoff team. They should still be a playoff team. You know, a number two seed, that might be a little bit of a stretch. Because I think they got that way because CP3 was on there. But you have to remember... The biggest question right now, I would say, is a $44 million player option for Chris Paul. That's the $44 million question, okay? Because I think if he opts out, he's not going to get that type of money elsewhere. Because you have to think of who else is out there. Does he maybe want to join the Lakers and join his friend LeBron James to have a better shot at getting a finals uh, championship? Does he want to join a big market in the New York Knicks who do have the cap space and are looking for a point guard? Or does he take that option or in any way, shape, or form re-sign with the Phoenix Suns? You know, it's going to be really interesting to see because Chris Paul, he's already said he's not retiring, not by a long shot, and I didn't expect him to retire either. So it's going to be very, very interesting to see what the future holds for Chris Paul, because I think he's got about two or three years left before he's kind of out of his prime. But if he really wants to go ring chasing, then he might leave the Phoenix Suns and maybe go to a big team like the Lakers. But again, this segment is all about the Milwaukee Bucks. And congratulations to the city of Milwaukee for witnessing their Bucks 
win the championship for the first time in half a century. Congrats, Milwaukee. So now with the NBA Finals and the NBA kind of in the rearview mirror, a lot of people's attention are shifting towards this Friday, which is the start of the Tokyo Olympics. Now, obviously, they were scheduled for last year, but there was some kind of pandemic going on, so they decided to change it to this year. But, you know, there's still a pandemic kind of going on, and Tokyo is not doing the greatest right now in terms of new coronavirus cases, which has a lot of people wondering should the Olympics still go on with a bunch of people from a bunch of different countries entering the place? And it is that question and that thought that is the topic and the subject, once again, of the segment known as Hot Takes. Now, to give you just some brief numbers, okay, this is what we've heard from outlets in japan and in tokyo so far in terms of covid19 cases connected to the olympics as of i believe it was two days ago two or three days ago there were 71 covid19 cases and you know there are more coming on the way with the opening ceremonies taking place on friday and then we're even hearing today that guinea is citing the coronavirus for the reason they're pulling out of the Olympics, okay? So the African country is saying, that's a deadly virus. I'm not going. They're not going. No athletes from Guinea are going to be represented. And not only that, but there is a state of emergency for Tokyo, Japan, and other regions in the Japanese area. Now, it makes you wonder, have Japanese officials been really cautious or is it just out of the blue a scientific sort of thing where this delta variant i guess is getting into people you know it has a lot of wonder and those are some unanswered questions that might not get answered for a very long time but you have to think about olympics of the past you know there's a lot of prestige there's a lot of you know showmanship there's moments and stuff like that you know with everything sort of being scaled back, no fans are going to be allowed at any of the events, and you have many athletes who have been pulling, who've pulled out of the Olympics, who are not going, or who have tested positive and had to be taken out. You know, Bradley Beal as an example. This is just—it doesn't have the feel of a regular Olympics, and obviously, it's not a regular Olympics. You know. You have to go back to, I believe it was Sochi in 2018 to get a real feel of what the Olympics were last like. Because this is something that goes back hundreds and hundreds of years. It's a time-honored tradition. You know, some of the greatest moments in all of sports have been at the Olympics. You know, the miracle on ice. You know, Jesse Owens. Michael Phelps, Usain Bolt, um, Katie Ledecky in recent memory. Okay, there are tons and tons of memories. But if you're not getting the feel that this 
Olympics isn't what it is in the past, then why even bother? Okay, if it was me and I had the chance to go to the Olympics, I would say no. You know, I'm never going to get to the Olympics, but even if I was given the chance, I wouldn't even sniff out the fact, you know, regardless of whatever kind of health protocols, safety protocols that they had, you know. I, I just wouldn't get the feel, you know. I understand you're you're going to another part of the country, you're going to meet some international people and stuff like that, but this just doesn't have the feel. I want to go, if I were to go to the Olympics, I would want to get the full experience. I would want to see, be part of the opening ceremonies with, you know, master presentations and the lighting of the torch and playing in games with international fans screaming for their favorite country, you know? You're not getting that at this Olympics. And I understand it's for financial reasons that the Olympics still have to go on because Tokyo invested so much into hosting these Olympics to start, you know, getting an Olympic village, getting the arenas and swimming pools, tracks, stuff like that. They shelled out a lot. And if they have to postpone it yet again, then that's going to put them really in a financial hole if you're speaking from an economic standpoint. So you kind of understand why, you know, regardless of if people think they shouldn't go on, you know, unless it gets really, really, really bad, then the Olympics are going to continue. But at least for me, I think the Olympics just shouldn't happen. You know, you got to wait for the full pageantry, you know, like you've seen in many years past, in many years past, you see all the countries waving to their fans, fans who have flown in from various countries, you know, it's a very special thing, it's a very special thing to have the Olympics go on, and if any part of that is limited, if any part of that is limited, then you just sort of, it's taken away, and it just doesn't feel the same, so I don't get I just don't get why the Olympics would go on. And, you know, it's not just the prestige and all that, but you have to talk about the safety part of it, too. It's a state of emergency. There's a state of emergency, and they're still going through with the Tokyo Olympics because you've got this village that people from all around the world, you know, you don't know what their situation is like. Every country is different. You have... The United States, you have Europe, you have, you know, South America, South Africa, and stuff like that. You don't know what their situations are like. You don't know if they're better or worse. So do you take that chance and have them all sequestered in this Olympic village, playing against each other, and possibly increasing the risk, not only for the country of Japan, but maybe the entire world? That's the thing you really have to think about. Are you going to be endangering more athletes to this coronavirus if you continue with these Olympics? It's really the biggest question. And obviously, you know, with the ceremonies taking place, the opening ceremonies taking place tomorrow, you know, it seems kind of late to, you know, back off from these Olympics and say, oh, this is a, a danger. We should probably not do this. You know, they're already sold on it they're flying people out to tokyo you know many athletes are still already there they're already practicing and there are even some events going on you know you saw women's softball and water 
handball or something like that. Which, by the way, some events there are kind of ridiculous. But just from my personal standpoint, these Olympics shouldn't have even happened because the minute they said that no fans were going to be there, the prestige was gone. Absolutely gone. And I understand because it's a health and safety kind of thing. But because the pageantry of Olympics in the past is not going to be present at this Olympics, then it seems kind of pointless if I was an athlete and I was asked to go to the Olympics. It seems kind of pointless because I want the full experience of being an athlete in the Olympics. But, you know, Tokyo officials, they're pressing on. They're going to say the Olympics are still going to happen, and we'll have to see what happens with these Olympic teams if we get more COVID cases or if they finally settle down. Up next is actually the debut of a brand new segment we like to call To the Extreme. Now, this segment dives into the world of action sports. I'm talking skateboarding, BMX, dirt bikes and all that and just the latest news and events that have happened and of course the biggest event that happened last week happened Wednesday through Saturday and that was the Summer X Games and it was the first time that the X Games were put on since 2019. That was back in Minneapolis but it's been so long since the competition scene for Summer X has been around so it was really good to see it back in action and This one, though, for this summer was a little different from events in the past because we've seen them in arenas and stadiums in places like Los Angeles, Austin, Texas, and Minneapolis, Minnesota, and U.S. Bank Stadium. But this one is different because this year it was basically in these small compounds and in backyards of some athletes, so it was just a home field kind of aspect, and We'll dive into it sport by sport, looking into all the different events they had. And we have to start with BMX. And the setup was pretty cool. Uh, There's an athlete in BMX. His name is Pat Casey. And he's got a backyard called the Dream Yard, which he decided to construct the dirt course and the park course all in his backyard. Literally, you step out the back door on the porch, poof, there's a giant courses there. And the events were pretty cool to watch in these kind of scenes and scenarios. Starting it off was BMX Dirt, and I gotta say, it was a little bit less than spectacular, just based on the fact because the course was a lot slower and tighter than course of the past. You know, you'd see bigger jumps with a lot more space in between them to get your speed and stuff like that. But with this dirt course, it was slow, it was tight, Couldn't get as much air as he wanted to, so not a lot of big tricks. It was just two jumps to start, and then a couple of hip jumps, and then just three big ones, which are your finish, basically. But, of course, Pat Casey wins this. He wins it, because it's in his backyard. He knows the course the most. He knows what tricks can go down on this one. And also, it was the first event of the day, so, of course, he would be able to take the gold medal, because he'd has a home advantage, literally, a literal home advantage. But the event after that was Dirt Best Trick, which basically all you got to do 
is hit your best trick on whatever kind of jump you want. And I think that Andy Buckworth deserved that dirt best trick gold medal the most with his no-handed double backflip, okay? Keep in mind that the double backflip's only been around since the late 90s, and not a lot of guys are doing it. But a lot of riders say that Buckworth is the best at the double backflip, and then throwing out the no-hander in the middle of that, too, was amazing. So he definitely deserved to get that gold medal. And then they shifted after the dirt event. They went to the park course, and this one just felt flowy, a lot of course. And it was different because normally on the park course, you have to share it with the skateboarders, but that was not the case for this park event. And so the judges were really looking at flow and use of the course as a big emphasis on their scoring. And the rider who did that the most was obviously the winner, and that was Kevin Peraza who took home the gold. Because I think, you know, he had a real lack of tricks. You know, he didn't have those big tricks like the double backflips and stuff like that. But he used almost every element of the course, which I think the judges really enjoyed. He was flowing. He got some big airs. I think that was the reason why Peraza was able to take home the gold medal. But I will say... You know, he didn't have a 540 to fakie like Pat Casey did to take the silver medal or the 540 flare like Mike Varga did to take home the bronze medal. But if Daniel Sandoval, if he had completed a full run, he would have taken that competition by storm. I mean, he rode the entire day in a Michael Jordan jersey. Well, I'll tell you what, if Michael Jordan was riding BMX, that's what he would look like. Pulling off the double decade, which is basically you spin around with your bars two times, which no one has ever done, ever done. And Sandoval just couldn't piece a full run together after that. He had a crash or a slip up. So Sandoval has got to be kicking himself a little bit for crashing like that. But then afterwards, it was park best trick. And I got to tell you, that was very fun to watch that was very fun to watch a lot of big tricks a lot of bangers you had jay tui throwing his bike forward all by itself called the nothing front bike flip you have jeremy mallet who had a 540 double tail whip to bar spin which means you're spinning 540 degrees throwing the frame of the bike around twice and then after that throwing the bars around once and then you have ryan williams which fun fact Ryan Williams is actually a professional scooter rider, and then he started taking up BMX only a few years ago, and he's already got himself a few gold medals during the Big Air Mega Ramp competitions at X Games. But this was his first time in a non-Big Air competition, and he just comes out firing with a 360 double backflip known as the Aussie Roll. But that was only good enough to get second place. Because first place went to Mike Varga, who made an NBD, as they call it in the business, a never-been-done, by landing the first-ever 1260. Now, if you don't know what a 1260 is, you spin around 1260 degrees, or, in literal terms, three-and-a-half full rotations. Three-and-a-half full rotations on about one-and-a-half to two seconds of airtime extremely impressive so credit to mike varga for an nbd in getting that gold medal in park best trick but another backyard that had some competition was 
in the Moto X discipline. Axel Hodges has a backyard called the Slayground, and this is an amazing feature out in California. It's got a variety of freestyle jumps. It's got a giant quarter pipe. It was incredible for that to put on. And the first event was the Moto X Freestyle. And I got to say, this course was a lot more open than you normally see in other courses. Because normally it's just a jump, you circle around to another jump, and so on and so on. Kind of like a NASCAR track, something like that. But this was a lot more open. It had a lot more varieties of jumps, a lot more options. Where really, kind of similar to BMX Park, where you have flow and use of the course is extremely beneficiary to getting a gold medal run. And that's why guys who were favored in this event, like Jackson Strong and Rob Adelberg, really struggled pretty much all day long. They weren't able to get a full run in, and those guys didn't even sniff first place. You know, Strong didn't even finish on the podium. He couldn't get a full run in. But the two guys who really were going back and forth were Luke Ackerman and Josh Sheehan. Now, they had some very similar runs. I mean, they both unleashed the flare off the quarter pipe, which is a backflip 180. They had multiple variations in a backflip, and they had 360s. But the big difference that I saw was the variations they had in their double backflips. Now, Luke Ackerman, who won the gold, threw out a knack-knack double backflip, which is throwing your leg behind you and over the back of the motorcycle. Versus Josh Sheehan, who took the silver medal, he only did a one-handed double backflip. So he just took one hand off while flipping around twice. So I think that was ultimately the big difference, was just putting in that slight variation. One was better than the other, and that earned Luke Ackerman his first ever X Games gold medal. But then right after that, they had the Moto X Best Whip competition. And I gotta say, there was a little bit of highway robbery. You got Genki Watanabe who had the best whip. He basically turned his bike, and he was facing backwards, but he only got second. He got the silver. You know, he had the best single whip. This isn't best whips. It's one single whip, and he had the best. But for some reason, the judges like Tom Parsons, all that variety to take home the gold medal. So a little scratching my head at that one. Because right after that, they had to go right into the next event. It's a Moto X 110, which is basically the dirt bike version of BMX dirt. And it's a much smaller bike. There aren't as many big tricks. And obviously, it's because they were smaller. But hey, Axel Hodges had to win a gold somewhere similar to Pat Casey. He had to win if it was on his home turf. And that's what he did with this contest. He knew exactly how the course shaped up. And he was able to take home... The gold medal for that. And then in best trick, you know, simple and clean. You throw out the best trick you can, and there was no doubt that Rob Adelberg, who struggled in freestyle, he comes back in the best trick, throws a front flip no-hander to win the gold medal. Now, you got to know that the ramps are steeped upward, which it makes it more easy to do a backflip. He's basically doing a front flip and it's basically more than a front flip because the angle of the ramp has you going upwards for a backflip. So I give total props to Rob, at Rob Adelberg because he earned that gold medal by getting that front flip no-hander in there. And then finally, Moto X quarter pipe was the last one, and these guys were going huge on it, absolutely huge. How high? Well, the winner, Colby Raha, 
set a new record since the event's been around in, I want to say, four years. 40 feet, nine inches is how high Colby Raha went. That is insane to be that high up in the air. Now, granted, the ramp is probably maybe 15 or 20 feet up, so they're really only boosting about 20 extra feet. But still, being 40 feet, nine inches in the air gives you a lot of time to think. Gives you a lot of time to think. And Colby Raha went the biggest, literally, to earn that gold medal. Now, the biggest headlines, though, and the highlights came in the skateboarding discipline. They were held at the California Training Facility, which is a very popular spot for a lot of skateboarders to get ready for competitions like this. And one of the events was the Skateboard Street Competition, and I gotta say, it kind of lacked a little bit, just because it didn't have the big name like Nigel Houston, who's a maybe the best street skater of all time when it comes to competitions. But we did see the return of Paul Rodriguez, who is the son of the comedian Paul Rodriguez, if you didn't know. He's an eight-time X Games street medalist, and he's won four golds, but still at 36, wasn't able to crack that podium. And a lot of people crashed along with Rodriguez, but Deshaun Jordan was the best rider and had the best run out of all the competitors. He laid it down, he had some great technical combinations, and he found himself with that gold medal so props to Jordan but then most of the guys had to turn right around and do a skateboard street best trick competition and I gotta say there was a little bit of robbery because there's a guy named Tiago Ramos and he did a 50-50 which is basically a grind just a straight grind you grind he grind up the rail and came back down similar to what you see in like Tony Hawk's pro skater he went up the rail and down the rail, but that didn't win him the gold medal, which I am a little bit upset about, okay? That was a little bit of robbery. Jamie Foy should not have won it with with his move. His was not as good as a 50-50 up and down. But after the street, they went to the park. They did some skateboard park, and I got to say, I'm never really the biggest fan of skateboard park, but... This competition was a lot more exciting than I thought. I mean, you have Liam Pace, who was the winner, as a rookie. This was his first time in an X Games competition, and he's doing things that no other guys are doing. He's doing a huge gap transfer with a kickflip frontside grab, and then going up a wall, doing a wall ride. I mean, how many skateboarders do you know that are doing a wall ride anywhere? That was insane for Liam Pace, and I think he deserved to have that gold medal. But another big story was that was that Gavin Botker, a 14-year-old, he was absolutely electric, you know, pulling off 540s and kickflip frontside grabs, and he was able to pick up the silver medal at 14. Just imagine what happens when this guy gets a little bit older and he gets a little more strength behind him. He's going to be rocking all around the park course, and I expect him to get a gold medal before all is said and done in his skateboarding career. But I gotta say, the women were just as strong as the men in their park and street competitions. I mean, in the street competition, you had Leticia Buffoni from Brazil. I mean, she was predicted, a lot of people saying, to win that event. And she clearly did. On her last run, she pulled together a run. And she was able to win a now record fifth street 
gold medal. That's the most among women in that discipline. And then in the park, Sky Brown, a young 13-year-old, might be the best women's skater on the planet right now. On the planet right now. At 13 years old, she's getting the height. She's getting the pop. She's nailing 540s on small transitions where she's only getting about a second and a half of airtime or even a second. And she's nailing 540s. Like, she's 13 years old, and she might be the best women's skater on the planet. I mean, total props to Sky Brown. But in the world of skateboarding, the headlines came from Skateboard Vert and Skateboard Vert Best Trick. Now, Vert has kind of been dying out a little bit, but it's coming back a little bit, especially in these competitions right here. I mean, the Vert competition was pretty good i mean you had jimmy wilkins and elliot sloan going back and forth having a great battle sloan had a big 720 and wilkins with an ollie 540 which means you're uh spinning a half without grabbing your board at all so you're just letting gravity do the work and it was that trick i think that led wilkins to get that gold medal i gotta say jimmy wilkins put on a great show to win that competition but of course the entire sports world couldn't stop talking about the return in Skateboard Vert Best Trick about 53-year-old Tony Hawk returning to competition for the first time since 2003. I mean, keep that in mind. This is like Michael Jordan coming out of retirement to compete in the 2021 Slam Dunk Contest, okay? Or this is like Jack Nicholas coming out of retirement and entering the Masters. You know, just think of the greatest athlete in whatever sport returning for a small event like an all-star game or a home run derby or something like that. This is what Tony Hawk did, and he just showed that he had not lost a step. I mean, they had this extension rail, and he was nailing an invert varial and doing a 360 back tail stall which was even good enough to get him fourth place. I mean, fourth place for Tony Hawk in his first competition in 18 years. All right, keep that in mind. But he wasn't the only elder statesman. You had Bucky Lassick, who's still skating at 48, but he didn't even make any headlines. He finished last. That is all Tony Hawk. That's all people were talking about. But what was funny is that with Tony Hawk returning to competition, That still wasn't the biggest story out of this competition. The biggest story was a young kid by the name of Guy Curry nailing the first ever uh, 1080 on a vert wall. The first ever 1280. The youngest guy to do a 1280. He's only 12 years old. He's only 12. And he nailed a 1080, which is three full spins of your body in a second and a half to two seconds and he became with that trick the youngest gold medalist in all of x games all of x games and he did it in front of tony hawk in front of guys much older than him i mean this kid just set the x games on fire just by doing that trick right there you saw him afterwards if you look on the video with tears he was so happy he got himself the gold medal And that was the moment of the X Games, I gotta say. The moment of the X Games. 
Now, if you have any thoughts about this, you can just search X Games on YouTube to look at all these highlights that I'm describing. And just know for a fact that the return to the competition scene for the Summer X Games was, to me, an absolute thrill to welcome back. For all of you in the New England area, the Massachusetts area, the Boston area, or just like Boston sports in general, it's time for our Let's Get Local segment of the week. And we got to start with the Red Sox, who kicked off their second half. They had a three-game set, supposed to be a four-game set. Obviously, the Yankees have their COVID issues in the Bronx. Then they had a scheduled three-game set in Buffalo, New York against Toronto, but obviously one of them got postponed. So it turned out to be a two-game set. And now tonight kicks off a four-game set at Fenway once again against the New York Yankees. Now, I got to tell you, I liked what the offense did in Toronto, but I was not a big fan of what happened in New York. Definitely not. Because this New York team is sub-average. It's sub-average. Their pitching is terrible. I mean, outside of Garrett Cole, was horrible, absolutely horrible, okay? Garrett Cole is the only pitcher they got. And I was kind of expecting at least two out of three. But when you have a guy like Jamison Talion holding you to one run for the kind of offense that you have, that's sad. That's sad. Because I, I kind of throw that um, Saturday game out the window because, A, the conditions were horrible, B, Garrett Cole was on the mound. C, it got called after six innings. And also you had the Alex Verdugo incident where the fan threw the baseball at him. So I kind of take that out of there. I just look at that Sunday game and I see a poor performance. And I understand you're going to get that once in a while. But to see it 9-1 to when you really could have just put away the Yankees for the entire season. You know, you put them at like 500 or something like that. That would have been ideal. But... That was not the case, and you kind of kept them going. But, you know, it was a good bounce back against Toronto, especially to see the pitching kind of the way it was. I mean, 13-4 to and then 7-4. to I mean, eight runs over two games. That's okay. It's okay, especially when you have guys like Garrett Richards on the mound. I mean, the fact that he was only holding them to, like, two runs was uh, was, was pretty good for, for Garrett Richards, for a guy who has struggled since they took away the sticky stuff. I mean... Richards was able to go five and two-thirds. All four runs were earned, five Ks, and a walk. You know, and then you just turn it to the bullpen, which is okay. That was okay. You know, it's not ideal, but, I mean, the fact that you got the win out of that. I mean, you had Martinez and Renfro going back-to-back was was great. was great to see. And especially, it was good to see Jaron Duran, you know, get that first hit, get that first home run. It's still... Still pretty early to make assumptions about him, whether he's going to be that vital piece or not. That's still that's still up in the air. That's still up in the air. But again, I'll stick with the same thing I've been going for all year long, is that the pitching rotation is going to be the biggest question, okay? It's going to be the biggest question for this team. And I think for next week's trade deadline, the biggest thing that they have to do 
you know, it's going to be different because you have Chris Sale coming back. That's like a boost right there. So maybe you don't need a big starting rotation guy. If if anything, I think probably either Perez or Richards is going to get bumped out if Sale returns to their starting rotation. You know, it's, it's going to be, and then you're going to get Tanner Houck in there. So maybe if you're going to get, a, you have to get at least a pitcher. You have to get either a bullpen arm or a starting rotation guy. I would love to see a starting pitcher over a bullpen guy. That's the biggest thing. And then a lot of people are talking about the first base situation. Obviously, Bobby Dahlbeck is struggling, but he's still young. And then Christian Arroyo, who has his injuries over this past season. But I think first base is totally fine. I think there's no real reason to panic and make a big move. I mean, if you look at offensively the biggest hole, if the only hole you have offensively is at first base, then that's fine. I I don't think there's a reason to overreact because I think this team has a lot of depth when it comes to offense. I mean, you got a utility guy in Danny Santana. You got Christian Arroyo. You got Marwin Gonzalez when he comes back from the I.L. I think this team is okay. Maybe they make a small trade, possibly for like a prospect or something like that. But I think a starting rotation or a bullpen is number one priority for this Red Sox team heading up to the trade deadline. That's going to be really what I'm expecting out of this Sox team. But, you know, who knows what High and Bloom's going to be able to do? I mean, he was in the front office for Tampa, which is a small market team. Now you got a big market team for Boston where, you know, people are kind of expecting those big moves. You know, High and Bloom has basically gone under the philosophy of doing a lot of in-house stuff. You know, what is he able to do? Is he going to be committed to make that big move? And I think he will. I think he understands that this Sox team has the potential to go a long way. Just the potential. And I think maybe one move, you know, nothing nothing where you're giving up, you know, your whole farm system. Basically going all out, basically. But just a small move where you still kind of have your future out there and you've got your present as well. So I'll be very curious to hear about the news and the rumors upcoming because we're hearing some names like Craig Kimbrell, Anthony Rizzo, Chris Bryant from the Cubs. We're hearing about Starling Marte from the Marlins. I mean, there are a lot of names that are going to start palming out, and you have to think that there's got to be that one player where once it comes out that they're expected to be traded, that Boston would have to pounce right on it. And get right on him. But who knows? I mean, the, every trade deadline is so unpredictable. You never know where players are going to get traded to. But sticking with the Red Sox, though, obviously the big news is the return of Chris Sale. I mean, he looked great in his rehab assignment for the Portland Sea Dogs AA. I mean, I, I want to get the numbers right, so I'm just going to pull this up real quick. Three and two-thirds inning, no hits, Walked one and struck out six. I mean, that's good. And, you know, we heard reports that he was hitting 97, 98. I think it's kind of tough to tell because Sale, this this is a double A team, and that's Chris Sale. That's Chris Sale. So, really, the the biggest thing you have to see for Sale is once he gets to triple A, and then he finally gets to the majors and he plays a game, you know, 
you're not going to rush him into things. You're not going to, you know, if he's throwing no-hit innings, you got to maybe limit him to five or six innings just to keep him going because you don't know what it's going to be like the day after if his arm is going to be sore, you know, after these every five days, et cetera, et cetera, kind of thing. You know, what is Chris Sale going to feel after these rehab starts? That's the biggest question mark that the Sox are going to have to answer once he is ready to return. But I'm getting excited to see Chris Sale back. Is he going to be the ultimate savior? No, but he's going to make that pitching rotation better. He's already going to make it better. You already got your top three in Evaldi, Sale, and Rodriguez. It's not the greatest, but I think just those first two, Sale and Evaldi, if those two are what they're looking like they've been in recent memory, then the Red Sox should have nothing to worry about with their starting rotation. Rodriguez, obviously there's concerns over him. I've talked about that the the past few weeks, but you have to get excited to see Chris Sale return. This is your ace returning, and you got to hope that he's at least a semblance of what he looked like back before the Tommy John surgery. So that'll be something to keep an eye out on. And another thing to keep an eye out on are the Bruins. We already know they lost Jeremy Lozon to the Seattle Kraken in the expansion draft, but the bigger news is that the Bruins and Taylor Hall kind of have a mutual sort of thing like Boston wants him to return and Taylor Hall wants to return and that is really good for this Boston team because they need pieces behind their first line they need the pieces not only on defense but just pieces in general where they're not relying on an aging Bergeron or an aging Marchand and an off injured David Pasternak that's all it is you have to get some depth behind them, especially defensively. But Taylor Hall, if he's able to come back, he might even take like a discount if the Bruins offer it to him. You know, there's a lot of questions with that, but I think the Bruins are in a good spot to re-sign Taylor Hall and get him back in that black and gold jersey. It'll be very, very interesting to see what the money aspect will be look like, if it's a long-term or a short-term, short-term, anything like that. But I think it's good news for Bruins and good news for Bruins fans to see Taylor Hall and the Bruins sort of are at that mutual point where both sides want to see Taylor Hall back in a Bruins jersey. Now, speaking of fans that want to see a fan favorite back, Stephon Gilmore and the Patriots still have not signed a new deal with training camps set to begin with veterans returning on Tuesday, this upcoming Tuesday. And we've heard reports that Gilmore's side is willing to either take a pay raise for a year or get a long-term extension. I mean, this is a win-win. It's a win-win for the Patriots. I mean, who else do you have as corners? J.C. Jackson? Like, outside of him, who else do you have? There's not much else there. So you have to re-sign Gilmore. You have to give him what he wants to avoid any kind of holdout. And I think... Gilmore is the guy, he's kind of said, like, once I get to training camp, then we'll really work things out. But this should be a no-brainer for New England. They have to keep Gilmore because if you don't have Gilmore, he's heading into free agency. J.C. Jackson, he'll head into free agency. So who else are you going to have as at cornerback for, you know, not only this year, but maybe the years upcoming, the next year or two, you know? 
if you just extend Gilmore, then you're good. You're covered on all ends of it. I mean, this dude was the defensive player of the year. I think he's earned his right to get a pay raise. So I don't know what's taken Bill in the front office so long, but that dude wearing number 24 for the Patriots, Stephon Gilmore, should be back on the field and should get an extension. But, you know, we haven't seen the Patriots return to training camp yet, so there's still going to be a ton of answers that Bill Belichick is going to have to answer, not just about the front office, but about many different things for this Patriots team. Now, finally, to wrap up our show, as always, we look at our LOL moment of the week. And I got to tell you, I had my mind set on one earlier this week. It was going to be John Lester hitting a 400-foot home run. I mean, you got to keep this in mind. John Lester is probably the worst batter statistically in Major League history. You know, I'm... Pulling up the numbers real quick, but I don't remember at any point him having such a big hit like this. I mean, listen, he, he barely even registers like a batting average, you know? And the fact that he hits a 400-foot home run, come on. What? It's insane. Absolutely insane. But there was a moment. This one's kind of a no-brainer if you've been following much of the sports news. This week's LOL moment of the week is going to... Giannis Antetokounmpo. Now, let me just point this out. Who doesn't want to be Giannis right now? The dude is living out his dream to win his first NBA Finals, and he's just going nuts. But the moment that turns him into this week's LOL moment, if you haven't seen it already, it's him driving up to a Chick-fil-A in Milwaukee on Instagram live and he asked for 50 exactly 50 chicken nuggets you know I forget exactly what the item name was called but he wants exactly 59 you can hear it on the video not 51 not 49 50 he wants 50 nuggets on the dot and I mean like I said who doesn't want to be Giannis right now who doesn't want to be Giannis Antetokounmpo? He goes on Instagram Live. He's driving in his car. He's got both the NBA Final Trophy and the Finals MVP Trophy. He's got the Larry O'Brien and the Bill Russell just hanging out with him. And he's just casually driving up to a Chick-fil-A. And I thought it was so funny. He was getting his order curbside. And the uh, woman who was taking his order, like, he was on Instagram Live. He was saying, like, you're... Thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people are watching you. And she's like, oh, really? Okay. And he goes and says, I want 50. Exactly 50. Obviously, the 50 referring to the 50 points he scored in game six to close out Phoenix. I mean, what a flex. What an absolute flex by the Greek freak. But hey, if you were, if you won your first championship, you'd want to do stuff like that too. If you won your first title and you were the superstar, you were the focal point, 
no one's going to blame you for doing this kind of stuff. No one's going to blame you. You know, it it affects it's beneficiary to all sides. I mean, Chick-fil-A gets the exposure, you know, despite having a really, really bad pass, which is a total conversation for another time. And then Giannis gets his fill of the nuggets. He goes on Instagram live, you know, he's just living out his best life. And I think he'll be on this high for probably about two months or so, because I mean, when you win your first title, it's almost like you black out and you just want to have a good time all the time. But like I said in our first segment, Giannis is the kind of guy that people should be looking up to. He doesn't need a super team. He showed his emotions. He thanked his whole family, especially his brothers and his mom. I mean, he's the kind of player that everyone should want to be because he's going out and he's partying. He's living his best life. Because he is going to Chick-fil-A, and Chick-fil-A will gladly give him exactly 50 nuggets. Imagine what that kitchen looks like. You know, the woman goes back after taking the order. Um, I just got an order from Giannis Antetokounmpo, and he wants exactly 50 nuggets. You know, first inclination if I was working there, which this has happened before, where, you know, I work in a restaurant, and we've had a couple of Boston athletes come in, like Peyton Pritchard. Joe Tooney's come in but you know imagine this Chick-fil-A like the first instinct if I was in there would be like uh I gotta go say hi to Giannis but he is also probably wants his nuggets so you gotta get to the kitchen take out 50 nuggets exactly you know not even just like you know normally in the fast food they just scoop them and throw them in there but they are precisely looking for 50 nuggets so you gotta go in there get some gloves on count them out, put them in the box and in the bag. (laughs) Just an absolute fun scenario. Um, Milwaukee, Wisconsin is going to be lit for the next couple of weeks. I mean, first title in 50 years. You know, the Brewers aren't doing too hot. And then, obviously, they got their rival in Green Bay. You know, they've got their issues with the Packers and all that. But Milwaukee is celebrating, and so is Giannis. And it's the Greek Freak's request for exactly 50 Chick-fil-A Chicken McNuggets, which earns him this week's LOL Moment of the Week. So that will do it for this edition of Let Me Speak. Thank you very much for watching and for listening. Make sure you're dropping those likes, those comments, and make sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Just search Let Me Speak Podcast. And remember, as always, if you've got a point you got to get across, just tell the whole world, shut up and let me speak. <laughs>